I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, we start with the deepening debt crisis in Greece and discussions about a second bailout. One of the ratings agencies will probably downgrade Greece to selective default. In that situation, you then get the worry about contagion. A selective default means that they will not accept Greek bonds as collateral, which means the Greek financial system will be in very serious trouble. The world's biggest banks face a capital surcharge of up to 3%. Right now, it looks like roughly eight banks will get a surcharge of 2.5% if the meeting goes as planned at the end of this week. It could also fall apart because there is clearly a big fight, particularly with the French and the Japanese, who have a somewhat different perspective. And as the UK's Chancellor George Osborne announces his backing of ring fencing, the retail banking sector in the UK, we ask, will this make the sector safer? What's quite interesting, actually, is that there's a real split in the bank's opinions on how this should be implemented. HSBC is leading the argument for a very broad ring fence of RBS, and Stephen Hester has taken completely the opposite opinion, which is you should keep it as narrow as possible. Joining me this week is retail banking correspondent Charlene Goff, chief regulatory correspondent Brooke Masters, and capital markets correspondent David Oakley. Let's start the show as usual with stateside. This week, the U.S. banking update comes from Justin Baer. Over to you, Justin. Thanks, Patrick. Last week featured a rare shakeup within J.P. Morgan Chase's executive suite, a bold move by Capital One, and an extension of a deadline for finalizing key rules regulating derivatives. First, Jamie Dimon reassigned Charlie Scharf, one of his longest-serving deputies, to a lower-profile job and unveiled the retirement of yet another close lieutenant, Heidi Miller. Mr. Scharf will switch from running the bank's sprawling retail operations, a post he'd held for eight years, to a role within the company's private equity arm. The bank also ousted the head of its mortgage business, which remains under scrutiny for lax foreclosure practices and for overcharging active military personnel. Second, Capital One's $9 billion acquisition of ING's online bank in the U.S. marks the latest step in the transformation from this standalone credit card company with the ubiquitous advertising campaign to one of the largest U.S. banks. Indeed, the deal will give Cap One $82 billion in in deposits, vaulting the company into number five among deposit-taking institutions. And finally, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission conceded last week that he needed more time to flesh out rules governing derivatives. Under the uh, law that is being implemented by the CFTC and the SEC, standardized over-the-counting derivatives must be centrally cleared and trade on electronic exchanges or exchange-like entities in an effort to increase safety and transparency of the opaque market. The real writing is behind schedule, but some new rules are due to come into force automatically in July, while part of the previous legal framework is due to expire. For the time being, the regulators will now have an extra six months to finalize those rules, taking us to the end of the year. Thanks, Patrick, and uh, back to you. Thanks, Justin. 
Let's start in Greece and discussions there about a second bailout package worth almost as much as last year's 110 billion euro loan deal. In order to receive this deal, the Greek government is being forced to introduce strict austerity measures to bring down the national debt. Again, measures which are causing already widespread public protests. Finance ministers are in Luxembourg today looking at how to involve banks and private sector lenders in the bailout. David, you've been watching this story more closely than anybody else. What's really at the centre of of the latest negotiations is how those private sector suppliers of credit can be persuaded to roll over their commitments to Greece on a voluntary basis, which is necessary in order to avoid triggering the the formal default of, of Greece and therefore a huge contagion. I think that's the key problem uh, for the markets, is that how do you do this? It seemed absolutely clear that one of the ratings agencies will probably downgrade Greece to selective default or default should there be a rollover. Standard & Poor's seems the most firm on this. I mean, they haven't made an official outright ruling, but it does seem that they would reduce Greece to selective default. In that situation, you then get the worry about contagion because a selective default, if the ECB is to be believed, means that they will not accept Greek bonds as collateral, which means the Greek financial system will be in very serious trouble, which means Greek bond yields will surge higher, which means that other peripheral bond yields could also go higher, particularly Spain. However, going back to the rollover itself, the other problem, as far as the markets can see, is that if you're an investment fund, why would you roll over Greek debt? And the answer is, you would only roll over Greek debt if you were offered market prices. Explain exactly what we mean by rolling over. This is basically when the debt issued by the Greek government reaches maturity and would normally be repaid to the bondholder. But what those creditors are being asked to do is voluntarily to say, no, we'll, rather than asking for our money back, we're going to commit for another two years, five years, 10 years, whatever. I mean, the ideal is that these bondholders would commit for, say, another seven years. But is it voluntary if you are committing for another seven years to debt with a coupon that is much lower than you should be given for a bond in the markets? So, for example, let's take a five-year bond, which is trading around, let's say, 15%. If your debt, your five-year bond, which is paying, say, a 5% coupon at the moment, comes to its maturity, would you really want to re invest in that bond at a 5% coupon, the answer is no, you wouldn't. You would expect 15%, which is what the market price is. I suppose there's two categories of investors here. There are the big banks who are open to persuasion by their government leaders. So we know that there's a lot of big French banks and big German banks who are creditors to the Greek sovereign and I'm sure are going to be deeply involved in these talks today in Luxembourg and on an ongoing basis to come up with some commitment, I suppose, from those banks that they will roll over. But I know you think there's a second category that maybe takes a a more hard-headed approach to this. I think certainly the market view, and I say my view too, is that banks, French banks, German banks, which hold quite a lot of Greek debt, may be convinced by their particular governments that it is in the national interest for them to roll over. But if you are a private investment fund, and French private investment funds have an estimated 10 billion of Greek debt on their books, why would you roll over the debt? The answer is you would not if you are actually going to be true to your shareholders or the people you are supposed to be responsible for making money for. So this then comes back to how much money can they roll over? We've got figures banding around 30 billion. Do French and German banks and maybe a few Greek banks and Italian banks hold enough to do that? Can they be persuaded to roll over? Maybe they can. But then it comes back to the other key problem. The ECB will have to back down on the collateral issue. And will they do that? 
And when will we know an answer to these well, vital questions? We, we suspect that, that the only decisions will be made once we know exactly what the rollover involves. And we think that now that it will be a European summit that will decide this, possibly in the middle of July, although they may well delay it again. Uh, but once we find out absolutely what the rollover means, then we will get decisions from one of the rating agencies, and then we will find out whether the ECB will actually respond and do what it said it would do, which is reduce Greek debt to default and therefore not accept them as loans, which I think they will have to back away from if, if we end up in that situation. Well, until then, I think one thing is certain that the markets are going to remain pretty jittery, at least in the Eurozone. So, Absolutely. Um, Watch those yields. Thank you, David. Let's move now on to the subject of capital surcharges for the world's biggest banks. This is the story that, Brooke, you broke last week, actually, that regulators are now discussing the whole details of how they want to break down what kind of surcharge they want to charge to the biggest banks in the world, up to 3%, three percentage points on top of what they would otherwise be required to hold. Just run us through that graded system. Basically, global regulators are aiming for somewhere between four and six buckets, determined by how big a bank is, how risky it is, how irreplaceable it is. Does it hold a dominant position in a market that could not be picked up by others if it fell apart, as well as how easy would it be to resolve if it fell apart? A bank like Santander that is very subsidiarized and everything is separated in different countries would probably get points and have a lower surcharge. Overall, there's about 30 banks in this category. We don't yet know absolutely how the lower tiers break down, but we know the top rankings, that those that will be required to hold the most capital. Exactly. It's complicated because the banks at the bottom of the 30 could also be seen as nationally significant financial institutions, which will have a slightly different set of surcharges with more play for the national regulators. Right now, it looks like roughly eight banks will get a surcharge of 2.5%. If the meeting goes as planned at the end of this week, it could also fall apart because there is clearly a big fight, particularly with the French and the Japanese, who have a somewhat different perspective. But what we think is that eight banks, three Americans, five Europeans will get a surcharge of 2.5% on top of the normal Basel requirement, which is that they hold capital equivalent to 7% of their risk-weighted assets. Now, those eight, just running through them quickly, we've got JP Morgan, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Citibank. Citibank as the three, three Americans. The big three UK. HSBC, Barclays, and Royal Bank of Scotland. Although RBS is in a complicated position in that its position was calculated based on relatively old data and it's in the middle of a big rethink of its business model. So it is possible it will sneak lower. I guess you could make the same argument about Citigroup. Citi certainly expects to be in the top bucket. It would be an enormous bonus for Citi not to be. I mean, they are planning mentally to be in the top bucket. And then the other two being Deutsche Bank and BNP. There's an argument to be said for them obviously being in these buckets. What is the argument that they shouldn't have to hold quite so much extra capital? Certainly HSBC will say it's not as risky as others and that it is more subsidiarized, that it's more spread out geographically. On the other hand, it is so crucial to the international payment system, it gets killed on irreplaceability and on sheer size. BNP Paribas similarly on sheer size has very little to argue about. What is really interesting is the next bucket down is probably going to be Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and the two big Swiss banks. And the question is whether the other two big French banks end up up there or further down. That's Société Générale and Credit Agricole. I think the external view outside of France is they're naturals. They ought to be in there. The French argue that because they are universal banks and they had a better crisis relatively than others, they shouldn't be penalized. So that's one of the biggest fights that's going into this meeting at the end of this week. 
one of the key points that you found out was that there's going to be an empty bucket right at the top. But what we've been talking about for the, for those eight biggest is a 2.5 percentage point surcharge. Actually, there's going to th- be a three percentage point bucket as well, but nobody's going to be in it. Right, it could even be 3.5%. It's hanging out there. One person involved in the discussions described it to me. It's there in case J.P. Morgan gets the stupid idea of going out to try and buy SockGen. They want it there to say, look, if you do that, we're nailing you. Well, as you say, there's a key meeting at the end of this week and then other meetings, I think, following up over the summer with other regulators. So goodness knows when we'll actually find official or get official news of this. Ring fencing is our final topic for today. This is the UK story that Chancellor George Osborne last week backed the plans that came out of the interim report that Sir John Vickers commission process, which was published back in April, finalised in September. But George Osborne has preempted that final report and backed the whole concept of ring fencing. This is the idea that you minimise the risks to the system by ring fencing largely retail operations within a big bank. Charlene, do you think it was helpful or maybe a little early to make this uh, judgment? Well, I think it was um, quite unexpected for him to come out quite so strongly and endorse it at this stage. Originally, we did expect more of a kind of wrangle between the government and the commission. The idea was that the commission comes out in September. We now know that's September the 12th with its findings. And then the government would sort of digest those and decide whether to implement it. But now George Osmond came out and said in his Mansion House speech last week that he thinks this is the sensible way to go on the key proposal, which is this retail ring fence. It seems there's very little scope for you know that to be changed. And I guess that's good for the banks in some way because the commission had said it hadn't completely ruled out a more drastic separation of the banks. No one had really expected that. But likewise, you know, some of them had been lobbying still quite hard, saying that they think any kind of ring fence would not be to the benefit of the industry. And it seems like they are going to just have to sort of accept this now. The key question is, what does the word ring fence mean? There's so many, as the interim report from the, the Independent Commission on Banking chaired by Sir John laid out, there are a whole variety of definitions that you could attach to this concept. Exactly. And I think that's the good thing, really, that we now know it's happening. It's just we can sort of thrash out the details of how it might happen. And the banks almost can move the debate forward and just think in a bit more detail about some of the best ways to implement this. And what's quite interesting, actually, is that there's a real split in the bank's opinions on how this should be implemented. And they all have very strong opinions. They're just completely opposing. So you have HSBC as sort of leading the argument for a very broad ring fence. So that would sort of encompass all the retail loans, but also corporate loans and all kind of more sophisticated devices such as interest rate hedges and other derivatives to enable banks to sort of service those loans. So they would all be in there. RBS and Stephen Hester has taken completely the opposite opinion, which is you should keep it as narrow as possible with just retail deposits and small business loans in there because he is very concerned that making it wider and giving a bigger business the kind of cast iron government guarantee would introduce actually more risk into the system. So it wouldn't achieve what they're trying to do. It would actually go exactly against what they're trying to do. Do you think there's any suggestion that banks will be able to have any latitude in in interpretation? Some commission members have indicated, I think, that they don't actually mind how it how it's interpreted as long as it protects those key deposits then that's the main thing or are we going to see it laid out concretely what the definition should be it was quite interesting when sir john vickers appeared in front of the treasury select committee because he said that 
you know, one way of doing it was to say, like, as you say, these have to be in there, which would be retail deposits and small business loans. These certain assets and liabilities cannot be in there. And then it's up to banks. But I would be very surprised if they left it that flexible. I think the concern is, and I think this will come out over the next couple of months, that banks will then have much more freedom to cheat effectively and almost can't be trusted to do what they're supposed to do without very strict rules. And the danger is that, you know, for instance, they take the retail deposits and use them to fund other parts of the business. And actually, in the event of a downturn, you suddenly realise that it's not as easy as it should be to sort of rip out that business and protect it. So that's the danger. And I think the only way around that is to have pretty concrete rules that banks have to obey. The problem, I think, with that is policing it, enforcing it. It's a big job for the regulators. At this moment, obviously, they're reconstituting the regulators. And it was pretty clear, I think, when you listen to the people who are going to be designing how we supervise banks under the Prudential Regulatory Authority, that they're going to want some pretty bright line principles. And it may not get down to really, really detailed rules, but they're going to want something they can enforce. I suppose the key question is whether the ICB has time and capacity enough to actually lay those rules out properly by September the 12th. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene, Brooke and David in the studio here in London and Justin in New York and to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.